travel is no longer a barrier. You can talk to anybody anywhere, not necessarily any time, but as long as you both have a connection and you're awake at the same time, you can talk mm-hmm. to anybody. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski. Those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while will recognize our next guest, Dr. Donna Vogel, MD, PhD, colleague and friend for a number of years now. Hi, Donna. Hey there, Kim. How are you doing? Good. Well, I'm going to tell folks about you. So those of you maybe who are new to the podcast, you're going to want to look up Dr. Donna Vogel, V-O-G-E-L, on the podcast series because she's given some great talks top 10 funding list for grants and contracts, how to apply for funding, um, views from an ex-insider, because Dr. Vogel, for 25 years, was a program officer at NIH, the NICHHD. So she um, had that experience. She had gave us the top 10 tips. And then she also gave a talk on professional societies, getting beyond the journal and beyond get, just getting receiving your journal in the mail. She gave a nice episode on turbocharging your presentation skills and how to present your research. And then I also want to put out there that you don't know about, but um, over this past summer in 2020 at Hopkins, Dr. Donna Vogel presented her really popular seminar called Grant Craft for Junior Faculty, Navigating the Maze of Federal Funding. So you see, Dr. Vogel is a wealth of information, as well as being super, super interesting, former Jeopardy champion, headbanger, favorite metalhead friend of mine who's a gardener, (laughs) and all the other stuff. So Donna, why don't you tell everybody, um, now that I've just yammered away, whatever you want to share with them in addition to all the personal information I've shared about you, and then what you want to talk about today. For sure. Well, it's great to be back on the podcast. I always enjoy these conversations. And I guess another sort of personal, but it's a personal slash professional tidbit because it's relevant to today's topic, is I'm a raging introvert. Now, what we're going to talk about today is networking and how networking is and is not different now that everything is virtual. Now, I don't think I've talked about networking on your podcast before, Kim. Is that right? No, you're you're exactly right. Because normally it's a topic that I discuss with students, trainees, postdocs, residents, people who are not yet in a faculty-level position. But you still need to network. Why? Well, I don't have to tell you that network is not just for looking for a job. Even as faculty, you need to make yourself known to people by expanding and nurturing your networks. Some reasons. Why would you need to network if you're a faculty member? Well, look at it as the flip side of why students and trainees need to network. They're looking to find a job. They're looking to find more training. They're looking to find you. You need to attract students or postdocs or residents. Mm -hmm. You need to forge collaborations for your next project. You're also looking for expanding your visibility as a professional. You want to get invitations to speak. You want to be nominated for awards. And critically, you need to get letters for promotion and tenure. So these are all reasons why you need to be out there being seen the way you want to be seen. 
And this is where my background as a raging introvert comes in because I am a raving introvert, as I said, but I have now learned to network so well that I teach other people how to do it. And I'm not looking for a job. I retired from full-time employment over five years ago, but I still can't stop networking because it is of value. And part of that is because it's a two-way street. Networking is always a two-way street. You never want to forget that. It's not you looking for something or somebody looking for something from you. It's mutual. And that's why it never stops. Now, your faculty. So I'm going to assume you know the basics already. I'm going to make another assumption. And that is that since you are probably early career faculty, you probably got your job in the 21st century. So you're early enough in your career that you know what informational interviewing is. And it's a relatively new concept on the job search arena, but it becomes relevant. Why? Because I'm going to give away my punchline right now. When everything is virtual, there's less distinction between networking and informational interviewing. I hate to use this word, but it works here. We're going to unpack that. And the way I want to approach it is four questions. It's not Passover, but I'm going to ask four questions. (laughs) Here's the first one. Question one, is informational interviewing a form of networking? Okay. Well, let's look at some definitions of networking, and we have all heard many. Kim, I'm sure you have a definition or more than one that you've used for networking. But I'm going to quote a couple of them that I've come across. One is from our colleague at Hopkins, who you know, Sarah Poynton. And Sarah once said, networking is linking up with others to exchange information, advice, contacts, and support. Note the two sides. It's mutual. It's balanced. You exchange. Dave Jensen who used to write the tooling up column for science careers and is also a headhunter and recruiter by background, defines it as follows. You are on a search for information and, and here's the key piece, the experiences of others. So by building up your visibility and your connectedness, you increase the access you have to other people's experiences. So that's a couple of networking definitions that I like. How about informational interviewing? Is it a subset of this exchange? Well, it is in that it's a bit more targeted. So what are some of the differences between networking and informational interviewing? Well, one thing is that informational interviewing is focused. If if you remember from your job search days and you arranged an informational interview with someone, that would be focused on a particular company that you wanted to learn about or a particular role that you wanted to learn about. Traditionally, networking is more open-ended, which leads into the next point. Informational interviewing is intentional. You have a goal, something specific in mind. But networking can be serendipitous. I did some of my most interesting networking when the train stalled on the tracks between Washington and Baltimore, and you start talking to people that you normally don't. 
informational interviewing is usually seen as unidirectional. If you are interviewing, and again, put yourself in your time machine, if you were looking for a job, you are there to learn about that job or that company. Whereas networking, as we just said, is ideally bidirectional. And then an informational episode is usually a one-off. It's closed-ended, one episode. But networking, if you're doing it right, is really ongoing. It becomes a way of life. And that's what happened to me. Like I said, I'm not looking for a job. I haven't looked for a job since 2006. And I haven't stopped networking. As a professional, as opposed to a student or a trainee, as a professional, in networking, you're cultivating relationships so that you have people to turn to when you need information and support, but also so you can help people when they need information and support. You're making me think a lot because I guess I'm not familiar with the informational interviewing concept or that that definition or the terminology. So oh, I'm really? Thinking, okay. Yeah, and I'm thinking really hard while you've been talking, and and so. From my perspective, the informational interviewing is me as the applicant or someone who's Mm -hmm. on the job market is I am seeking information from potential employers versus Mm -hmm. it being when you first said that, I guess I was thinking it was a tool that like behavioral interviewing that people who are trying to hire someone would use Ah. a certain technique. Like uh-huh. I, I live in an HOA and we're interviewing management companies and we're and I keep telling them we have to use behavioral interviewing techniques. So, mm. wait, so what I like about what you said and what's making me think is that when you said the word experiences, when we're networking and going beyond just the old-fashioned exchanging business cards, who are you, mm-hmm. what do you do, what's your you know rank, role, serial number kind of thing. More about getting into storytelling and experiences, which makes the the context richer. It kind of it turns the relationship from transactional to transformational. You tend to then remember a story, or in your instance, what you used, an experience uh-huh. that might help ground that relationship. And then I think it. Also, when I then move that into the informational interviewing, it's the same kind of thing. I'm thinking that, you know, when I had, when I was interviewing for this job, I hired a coach and her big thing was about mantra, have a mantra, have a mantra. And it's, and along with the mantra, it's the idea of how, what is your story? You know, what is, what is your story that you're writing for your life? Who are you? And when you have a good story or good stories that talk about, oh, when you were challenged one time and sometime when you really screwed up and you really learned a lot from right. it, those things, stories, really bring us together. There's something very primitive about a story, you know, a once upon a time mm-hmm. story. And so mm-hmm. this is what I like about this conversation is that you're really making me think hard about what is it we do on a surface level for networking, but then how we can make that a little bit richer. Mm. Yeah. The, so the informational interview, as you figured out <laughs> after initially thinking it was something else, is the invitation to someone I'm going to say it's a cover story for you're looking for a job. 
but you never say you're looking for a job because then it's no longer an informational interview. It's somebody emailing me or messaging me on LinkedIn and saying, hey, Donna, you were in the government for a long time. I'd love to talk to you about what it's like to work at NIH. Or I'd love, I'd love to talk to you about what was it like being a program officer. Got it. And do you have 20 minutes? Got it. And you have a conversation. So it's, it's that. And it is job-focused, but it is explicitly not getting a job-focused. That's the difference. Ah, so it's almost, it's like part of the, it's, it's part of your background work. So if I'm thinking of being mm-hmm. a, a department chairperson... Um, yeah, you would say, tell me what is what is a, what is a day in the life of a department chair like? I mean, tell me about mm-hmm. it. So now I'm kind of getting a lot of different chair people's stories to right. help me figure out if that's what I want to do. So that's kind of mm-hmm. one way. But then it's also can be purposeful that if I'm asking somebody at the University of Cincinnati, hey, what's it like to be a department chair here? And they're like, well, by the way, we actually are interviewing, you know, we have an ad out. You're like, oh, you don't say. So, yeah, right, right. <laughs> there you go. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I used to do that. I would talk to people and I, I would say, you know, I, I'm really curious, how did you get to be an associate dean? <laughs> that kind of thing. And you ask them for their stories, and people, as we know, love to talk about themselves. But the point there is it is still focused. It's still with a goal in mind. And traditional networking, and I'm going to use a, a non-job-focused story just as an example because it's one of my favorites is one time I was riding the train from Washington to Baltimore, as I did for eight years, and the train broke down and we had to wait on the tracks and you start talking to people. And I was just talking to somebody about how they had had to find out about what they had to do to bring their dog on the train. And that's not really of interest to me. I don't have a dog. Um, but it was just what they wanted to talk about. So we just had this conversation about what did you have to do to arrange to bring a dog on a train. <laughs> not two weeks later, back at Hopkins, one of our colleagues said to me, you know, Donna, you ride the train a lot. Do you know anything about what do you have to do to bring a dog on the train? No way. <laughs> I am not making this up. The curious happening of getting a dog on the train. That sounds like a, a, a right. play. <laughs> In the nighttime. Right. <laughs> but no, that really happened to me. And, wow. and that's how you have information that other people want. Right. right. You keep your antennae up. But we're, we're kind of getting off the track, no pun intended. <laughs> so the point here is that while informational interviewing is more focused, traditionally network can be more serendipitous and it just happens. And you often have a plan, but you often don't. You just walk into a so-called networking event with no plan whatsoever. But... If you're thinking about it, let's say in the before times, if you were going to a conference, and we've talked about this, that you plan ahead on who you want to talk to, and you get in touch with them, and you say, I'm going to be at this meeting, can we have coffee? And you've moved your networking a little bit along the spectrum from the serendipitous to the intentional. So what happens in a virtual world? In a virtual world, you're not going to that meeting. You're not riding on that train. You need to make all of your networking more intentional. 
which makes it more like an informational interview. You have to have more of a goal in mind. It's going to be a little less focused, maybe, than looking for a job, but it's going to be more like an informational interview. Which, Which brings me to question number two, which is a good segue because we just talked about conferences. What is different if the networking arena is now all virtual? So, well, there are negatives and there are positives. Believe it or not, there are some positives. The negatives, obviously, are we don't have any more in-person conferences, which is normally a great venue for that serendipitous kind of networking. Mm-hmm. So you lose a lot of opportunities. Some are planned, some are unplanned, where you would talk to people after their presentation or at their poster or in the coffee line or at the so-called social events, which we all know are business events, right. or or getting introduced by mutual connections, mm-hmm. which happens all the time at conferences. Right. And also, even at your own institution, you don't have a chance to have lunch with the speaker after the seminar, which is another wonderful opportunity that we've lost. What are the positives? Well, with most of us working from home, travel is no longer a barrier. You can talk to anybody anywhere, not necessarily any time, but as long as you both have a connection and you're awake at the same time, you can talk to anybody. You will find that even busy people are more flexible now. People are not as scheduled. Mm-hmm. Also, if there are organizations that you're interested in, maybe it's a university seminar series or maybe it's a society or a a disease advocacy group or something you'd like to know more about, they probably have a lot of online events that, again, you don't have to travel to to participate anymore. A lot of them are free and you can just log into events that are happening in other places and learn more about that organization, learn more about what they're doing. And you don't have to be a member of the society. A lot of these things are open to anybody, which is great. I did a workshop for the Association for Women in Science um, not long ago that was open to anybody. So there's stuff like that. You also have more time to prepare. If you just run into somebody, that's a cold call. But if you've set it up as a Zoom call or a FaceTime or what have you, You've got more time to prepare. You can think of conversation starters. You can make notes. You can have points written down that you want to bring up, which really takes us back to the same techniques you would use on a video or a phone job interview, which is you have your notes in front of you. You're prepared. You've done your homework. So those are some of the positives. Bottom line, your networking becomes more intentional so that nearly every professional interaction now must be planned. Serendipity has almost disappeared. And side benefit, because you need to plan everything, it kind of gives an advantage to us introverts. I was just just thinking about that. That is, it's um, one of those blessings for all of my introvert friends and colleagues that they're really thriving but you, as an extrovert, oh, yeah. you probably really you probably really miss all those random opportunities. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. This is this has been painful for me. I'm not. I'm, a, I'm, I'm also. While you're a raving, raging introvert, I'm exactly a raging, raving extrovert, and I'm also a hugger on top of that. So you can imagine 
trying to crawl through my computer monitor and, and hug people. While, while you're talking, it's also reminding me, and maybe you'll talk about this later, about good Zoom hygiene, about this uh. whole notion of serendipity and not knowing who you're going to see or meet on these Zoom calls, wherever you may be, now that we're open, the whole world's open to us, I think it's mm-hmm. even more important that you do, as you said, a little bit of planning and think, oh, if I'm going to hop on this call at Institution XYZ or Association ABC, look the part, because your sure. name's going to be there, your institution's going to be somehow indicated, perhaps, and people, you know, we all do the Brady Bunch scan, we're constantly looking at people, and there'll be breakout sessions, or... There, there will be opportunities where people will see you, notice you. So you you want to put on your best face, literally your mm-hmm. face. So mm-hmm. the the meeting hygiene thing to me is getting is one of those things that I just kind of obsess with watching. I'm thinking, my gosh, don't you see your own face and the fact that you're eating constantly? Like we can all see you chewing and we see you guzzling your soda and popcorn's falling all over you and your cat's, you know, walking all mm-hmm. across your face. And so while that can be cute and fun with family and friends when you're in a, a professional meeting and if your intention is to network and do some of this informational interviewing and just putting your face out there, you want to make sure just like in when you're in public mm-hmm. back in the olden days that you are not showing up at the conference in your sweatpants and mm-hmm. you look disheveled and you're eating and your mouth is open and all, all that kind of um, things that drive someone like me crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we were on video right now, I would have definitely flat ironed my hair. <laughs> but, yes, I do, I do have a few things I can say about that that come in later under the fourth question. But the third question, since we just asked what's different, Let's ask what is the same, because there are some things that are the same in an all-virtual environment. And the fact is, the content, almost the entire content of what you have to say and what you're listening for is the same. It's only the platform that has changed, because it's not about you. It's about the two of you in a networking relationship. So how do you meet people? A lot of that hasn't changed. There's going to be friends of friends and colleagues of colleagues and authors or speakers who interest you and you want to know more about their topic. And you can just follow up with that. And those could be traditional or digital authors. They might be publications. They might be blogs. They might be social media posts. More and more professional sites, universities, and others are using social media as a channel. Alumni sites are extremely valuable, whether you're using something like LinkedIn or whether you're using a homegrown alumni platform like my college does to connect alumni and alumni with students. Just like before, you can search out organizations that you're interested in and attend their events. It's just that they're digital now. And the benefits of finding common ground, and I realize that that's something that's gotten a little bit controversial. I've read some posts that say, oh, you shouldn't make a big deal out of finding something in common with somebody. I disagree. I think it really makes the connection stick. I don't care about making it personal. I care about making the connection stick. So 
I connected with somebody just last evening, and I noticed on her profile that she had gone to Wellesley, and I went to Bryn Mawr, and like, dang, seven sisters, we've already got something else in common. See, I think that's a value. I had I had a conversation, this was a real-life conversation years ago when I was at Hopkins, and I was talking, I, I used to be in, interested in building alumni relationships for networking purposes and for job-finding purposes. And that put me in the company of other people who are interested in alumni for other reasons, like fundraising. And I was talking to one of these guys one day, and I had been looking at his LinkedIn profile, and at the bottom of it, it said, Hopkins Lacrosse. And I'm like, dang, Chris, really? Hopkins Lacrosse, really? And he said, you would be amazed at how many doors that opens. Yeah. yeah, So put those things in. You're making me think of like just the signature files or, as you're saying, in social media, little things that we also subscribe to or little emblems, any kind of symbolic things can sometimes put us together above Mm. and beyond or or at a more personal level like you said so that's really ringing in my head that that's a a good reminder just like uh, fans sports teams fans that Mm. you're out Mm -hmm. in public you may not have much in common but if you're this person's wearing that team's jersey or a hat it it can spark conversation if you're wearing a sweatshirt that's got the emblem of whatever whatever so so yeah absolutely unite us absolutely true and and things like that are apolitical. I mean, if, if I'm on the metro and I'm wearing a, a Washington Capitals shirt, it's totally apolitical. Right. Okay, so finding common ground, I happen to believe in it. And the importance of keeping your network refreshed, this also has not changed, even in our digital world. What do I mean by that? It's not just keeping your own profile up to date, but once you've connected with somebody, it means staying in touch. So once you've established a profile, you post things. You link to articles that you think your network would be interested in and want to read. You congratulate members of your network when they accomplish something. And I don't mean happy birthday. I think that's one of the stupidest things on LinkedIn. I never, I never do birthdays on LinkedIn. But if somebody gets a promotion or if somebody gets an award or if somebody publishes an important paper, I will always shoot them a note. And that's keeping your networks alive, keeping them breathing. And LinkedIn here in the virtual environment becomes much more important than it ever was. And it was important before. So joining groups that you can get into without paying anything. You don't have to pay dues to an organization to connect on LinkedIn with people with a shared interest, professional groups of various sorts. You have to use it effectively. You have to make sure your profile is, uh, what I always say is your profile should show you the way you want to be found. So think what would make you look good to people that you want to see you. And when you do connect with somebody, I can't say this enough, always include a message. They give you an option. Do you want to send a note? Yes, yes, yes. You never send a request for a connection without explaining why. Why do you want to connect with the person? Is there something you want to learn? Or 
do you have something in common? Or, oh, I see you also belong to this society. I have our paths crossed, you know, that kind of thing. Always have a message. How do you know them? Why you want to connect? Remembering, of course, that connecting is a means, not an end. I have actually had requests from people who just wanted to bump up their numbers. That's an instant reject. So no, have a reason. And when you are connecting on something like LinkedIn, the etiquette is very much like an informational interview. When you're making the approach, when you're making a request to be part of somebody's circle, be upfront about it. Explain what you're doing. If you want to talk to them, you set it up the same way. You say, do you have X minutes? Can we talk or video chat, make it specific, and then work around their schedule as needed if you want to take it into a conversation. And that goes into question four, which is how do I make the switch? How do I switch from live networking to video? So even if you're already comfortable with networking in person, what do you have to do that's different? And I will be the first to acknowledge that some people are more comfortable on the phone. I not. Some people prefer video. Some people prefer a long email or even a text chat. So you want to find common ground in terms of how you want to communicate with people. But there's some things that there isn't really a good substitute for. It's hugs, right? You can't hug people. But but even if you're meeting somebody for the first time, what do you substitute for that firm handshake that networking tips always advise. Always have a firm handshake. Well, what else? What can you do instead? Uh, straightforward gaze. Looking right into the camera, not looking up or down. Make sure that your eyes are on the person who's seeing you so you're not looking at an angle. Of course, dress well. We talked about that. Some sites will tell you to use a virtual background, and a lot of people do. I don't. I don't like the virtual background just because they can get flaky, and that's not a good look. I don't like having those little shadows flitting around your head, and if you're moving, you get sort of bright. Yeah, so I, I advise people not to use a virtual background, but, of course, choose your background carefully. You want a clear, attractive setting. You want it to look professional. And I usually use my little library with bookshelves behind me. It looks very academic. Lighting. You don't have to buy a professional lighting setup, although you certainly can. But you want to make sure your lighting is even and not backlit. There's a window behind me if I'm not careful and I have to angle my laptop on my desk if it's daytime so that I'm not backlit. Indirect lighting is better. Smile. Practice smiling if you're not used to it. And, of course, you can refer to notes. We talked about that. But keep them at eye level, right? You don't want to be looking down at your desk and then up again and down and up again. Secret is put them on sticky notes and stick them to your monitor. If you have a sort of a shelf on your desk or an elevated cubby on your desk, you can stick them on that if they're at eye level. So that way your gaze doesn't wander. And you can surprise. You can still use body language. I do. You can lean forward. You can show interest. You don't want to sit back with your arms folded. You can and should gesture with your hands. Why do you gesture with your hands? 
because it actually helps your voice modulate better. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, you might be uncomfortable, but the fact is that other people are too. We're all in this together. And the person you're talking to may be really relieved that you want to talk. The take-home message is when everything is virtual, the distinction between networking and informational interviewing breaks down. If you know how to do an informational interview, you know how to network in the virtual world. You said something about, you know, because it's Zoom has opened up the world to us that we can go anywhere without having to travel and have the funds to travel and leave, leaving mm-hmm. our homes and families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's nothing to me is more endearing is when you you get involved in these monthly calls you know we all have regular monthly calls and associations and meetings and interest groups and learning Mm. communities and when you volunteer to do something a lot of us have gone to zoom and virtual meetings and the people who organize and host these things would love it and they do love it when i say well you know keep me in mind if you want someone to present something do something lead the charge Mm -hmm. on this and people love that, that proactivity to engage. So I'm in, imagining that in addition to thinking and preparing in advance for these virtual um, experiences that you think about, just like when we give a talk, who is in the audience? Who's going to be there? What yeah. kinds of people, in addition to learning and and meeting people and learning their experiences, where might I find some opportunity to volunteer, to step up, to be a leader, to be seen even even more visibly? So uh, beyond mm-hmm. uh, small networking, but actually to take a, the initiative to lead something. And, and people love that. You know, gosh, this is great. Somebody else is going to volunteer to do something. That's um, always, I think, a, a strategy to um, being seen and like, oh, this mm-hmm. person really... Um, Good for him. Good for her. Absolutely. No, that's an excellent point. It goes to the two-way networking relationship that you want to be there for people to learn from you. And that's very much a segue to the the personal marketing, personal branding story. You know, people would come up to me all the time. You get into conversations. What do you do? What do you do? And I would tell people that I give classes and workshops on building professional skills for young scientists. And, oh, they would say, do you do road trips? And I would say, why, of course I do. There you go. So, yeah. So when you tell people what you know and make it clear that you're ready to share it, you're right. They're going to love it. And then that that whole, especially if you're thinking of peer-to-peer, what we always do would tell our faculty and trainees is, you know, you don't wait to be invited to go give a talk. You right. offer to give a talk or use the, yeah. the Dave Usum model as always, he, you know, the two for one. You got a family vacation, you go somewhere, wherever city you're going, you look up mm. the local university and say, hey, I'm going to be in town. He's like, my wife didn't really care for that strategy very much, but he was trying to be efficient saying, you know, yeah. for an hour and a half. While the family's getting lunch somewhere, I would go and give grand rounds somewhere. So the, the idea yeah. is that while you're online, say, and you meet someone, just say, gosh, I'd love to, if there's an opportunity, if you need be, I'd be happy to come and talk to your lab 
a group about whatever. And then it's a quid pro quo. And so now you're kind of getting more nudging into the informational interviewing. If you purposely, you know, you invite someone to be on a Zoom, one of your Zooms, and then it's, hey, happy to Zoom with you guys too. So that, that to me is a, like you right. said earlier, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier now to arrange those kind of talks. Oh, it sure is. The barriers are much lower. Right. The activation energy is a right. lot lower. Right. So much easier. Wow. This is so much great stuff. Is there anything else before I, I don't want to cut you off? Because I could just keep talking to you forever. <laughs> well, I guess one thing that occurred to me while we were chatting about overcoming distance barriers that have now fallen is that you also overcome cultural barriers, age barriers, mm. And you can take advantage of the wisdom of people that you ordinarily would think you wouldn't be able to get time with. And if they're people that you haven't seen in years because they stopped going to the meeting because of age or a disability or living someplace where there isn't good travel, you can do that now. Right. You can reach out to people that you haven't seen in a long time and share wisdom with them. That's right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Ah. Well, folks, so much good stuff here. I told you be good that you've been learning and we're talking with Dr. Donna Vogel. You can reach her at drdonnavogel at gmail.com. That's Dr. D-R dot Donna dot Vogel, V-O-G-E-L at gmail.com. Dr. Dot Donna dot Vogel at gmail.com. <laughs> Donna, you've been great as usual. I always learn so much from you and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast again. A pleasure as always. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.